So in the passage before this, we saw Gideon was used by God to deliver the people from the oppression of the Midianites. Uh, The passage begins in Judges 6 that the Midianites were overpowering Israel, where even they had to make for themselves dens in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. And the Midianites, whenever the Israelites would, would bring up their crop, the Midianites would come and take all the produce of the land, leaving no sheep or ox or, or donkey. Even when God calls Gideon, remember where, what Gideon is doing? He's threshing in the wine press, which is not where one threshes. That's where you make wine. And so we see a very dire situation under the Midianites. And yet God saves his people. The question then becomes is how will God's people respond to God's gracious salvation? That's the question for today's passage. How are they going to respond to this salvation that God provided through Gideon? And our story today, our account today, is structured by these sort of summary statements as well as then the narrative going forward. And so that's what we'll do. We'll look at the summary statements and look at the narrative and just follow the story through and then make some conclusions at the end. So first, we see in 829 through 32, as Holly read for us, we get something of the backstory. We get the stage set. Gideon dies and he leaves behind all of his sons. And already we're expecting things are not going to go so well. Why? Because how many sons does Gideon have? He has 70 sons. Um, He's got many wives. He even has a concubine. Like this this is not exactly the greatest legacy to be leaving. We're anticipating, even at this point, that disaster is likely to follow. And so when we get to verses 33 through 35, our first summary statement of this passage, we see that Israel exchanges God's, they exchange disloyalty for God's deliverance. In exchange for God's deliverance of them, they respond with disloyalty. Read verse 34 and 35 with me, where it says, And the people of Israel did not remember Yahweh their God, the God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They didn't remember him. And then secondly, here's the second thing they do. And they did not show steadfast love, hesed, loyalty, to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. Do you notice the parallelism here? They don't remember God who had done all these things for them, and they don't show loyalty to Gideon, whom God used to do all these good for them. And so Gideon's deliverance and God's deliverance are, are assumed to be linked here, linked here. To show disloyalty to Gideon is to show disloyalty to God, and that's exactly what they do. They don't remember their God, and they are treacherous towards Gideon. We don't know how that's going to happen yet, but the narrator tells us they are going to be disloyal to Gideon. And that's what we see in the very next verses, 1 through 6. Whereas Holly read for us, Abimelech this son of Gideon from the concubine in Shechem, he conspires to make himself king over Shechem, and so he kills his brothers, 70 brothers. Abimelech's rise to power is funded by the bank account of a false god. He hires these worthless men, and it's founded on the murder of his 70 half-brothers. And this treachery occurs in Shechem, of all places. This is the place where God had appeared to Abram, promising to give him the land of Canaan in Genesis 12. 
And so this was the first place in the promised land where an altar was built in worship of the Lord, as Abram did there. It was the first place where under the leadership of Joshua, Abram's descendants then would gather to worship the Lord upon entering the land. Joshua 8. And so Shechem was a notable place known for the worship of God. And Abimelech also kills his brother, you'll see here in 9 verse 6, at the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And this is the place where Jacob, one of the patriarchs, purged the idols from his household in Genesis 35. This is where Joshua, again, famously led the people in a covenant renewal, where he famously said, Choose whom this day you will serve, as for me and my house we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24. These are notable locations of the worship of God. In 2007, when Barack Obama announced his candidacy for the presidency, you may remember that he did so at the old state capitol building. And this is where Abraham Lincoln had delivered his famous house divided speech, where Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided cannot stand. In this way, uh, to be President Obama was intentionally associating his run for the presidency with Lincoln's anti-slavery achievements. He was going to that location to make that link apparent, right? And politicians do this all the time. Our passage today is something like the reverse of that. It would be akin to the government reinstituting slavery and announcing it, say, in Gettysburg or reversing the Civil Rights Act and announcing it in Montgomery, Alabama. You also notice that our passage today throughout, the characters show this particular interest in rulership. Ruling, kingship, reigning language gets, gets used all throughout the passage. And this should cause us to look back at chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, the end of the Gideon section, where the language of ruling first occurred. So look with me at chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. So this is the end of Gideon's account here. It says that the men of Israel then said to Gideon, Rule over us, Gideon. Notice this. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And notice this. My son will not rule over you. The Lord, Yahweh, will rule over you. The people are seeking for Gideon to rule and his son, you notice, and Gideon refuses not only his own rule, but and his son. And we're meant to suspect something of the insincerity of Gideon's words even here because he ends up naming one of his sons Abimelech, which means my dad is the king. Melech is king. Avi is my dad. My dad is the king. Okay, Gideon, what's going on? And so this passage, this earlier passage, finds its tragic, ironic fulfillment here when, in fact, Gideon's son is making himself the king, the very thing Gideon said he would not have happen. In fact, this passage, interestingly, stands out from the rest of the entire book of Judges. Uh, you, you remember in the middle of the book, chapter 3 through 16, we have the judges' cycles. Okay? You, have the out, you have the double intro, the double outro, but in the middle you get the series of judges, six judges, and then here's Abimelech. Now this section lacks the normal features of all those other judges' cycles. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of give you some of those features. 
Okay, so normally in the judges cycles, we're told it's always introduced with this exact language. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Always that exact, exact language used in the other cycles. And so that language is lacking here. Something similar is said, but the exact language is lacking. And the change seems to be intentional. I think we're supposed to notice the deviation. It's meant to stand out to us and signal that something different is going on here. Second, we always see in the cycles that God's hand, God hands over his people to some sort of foreign enemy. They rebel, he hands them over, and here God doesn't hand them over to a foreign enemy. In fact, there isn't any foreign enemy in this passage. The problem is entirely internal. Abimelech and Shechem are the enemies. Thirdly, almost always, the people of Israel cry out and God raises a deliverer. And here the people are not said to cry out, and God does not raise up a deliverer. Fourthly, rather than someone being raised up by God, which is what normally happens, here we have an individual raising up himself. Every other leader in the book of Judges, every other leader is always appointed and raised up by God. The book talks about God raising up judges, not judges raising up themselves. They don't seek out the role for themselves, but here Abimelech grabs power for himself. And fifthly, additionally, even when God does raise up leaders, he does so that they might judge, that is, to save and deliver God's oppressed people. But here, Abimelech raises himself up not as a judge and a savior, but as a king. He seizes his position not to save and to rescue, but simply to grab power. And then sixthly, lastly, in fact, this passage is is the first time the word rule is ever used in the book starting in chapter 8, verse 22. And never again in the entire book is it ever used to refer to the activity of an Israelite, only what the oppressing nations do. It's entirely unique to this passage, in other words. So it's a clear deviation from the pattern we have in the other judges' accounts. And so to be clear, Abimelech is not a judge. In fact, we might call him an anti-judge. As one commentator says, I think he summarizes this well, he says, quote, he is not raised up by God, but rather he raises, he's raised up by himself. And he does not deliver God's people, but rather kills and oppresses them. He does not bring rest to the land, but rather pollutes it with innocent blood. As you guys probably know, I play, I'm a percussionist and I play drums. And when I was in middle school, I played in my... Uh, City's uh, middle school band. And I, I've played drums since I was a, a very young, and so I took a lot of lessons and was pretty decent at it. And so I, I sort of had that in my mindset as I went into my middle school band. I wanted to play the snare drum. Like in the percussion section, let me play the snare drum. That's kind of the top position, right? Don't give me the bass drum. Don't give me the bells. Don't give me the triangle. Give me the snare drum. Okay? So, for one of our concerts, it was a Christmas concert, we were playing Ode to Joy, and normally I would play the snare drum, but my band teacher wanted to diversify things, and she said, okay, Kirk, you're going to play the bells, or like, kind of like the xylophone thing, and I was not having it. And so I did not practice at all. I would show up to like my little private sessions, with, like we had private sessions occasionally with the band teacher, and I would just be like hitting random keys, guessing. I was not having it at all. I was, I was such a punk that at the actual concert, I still hadn't practiced, and I was just like hitting random keys in the middle of this concert. 
And thinking back about that, I mean, it just must have sounded terrible, right? It's a really high-pitched noise, too, so it doesn't, like, blend in. And what happens is when something deviates from the normal pattern of notes, you're going to notice it. Like, all the parents must have been like, whose kid is that? And similarly here, I think that these aberrant features of our passage are meant to stand out. They're meant to pierce through all the noise. They're meant to reflect the the aberrant features of of the text I think are actually meant to reflect the aberrant behavior of the people within the text. In other words, just as the text itself breaks away from the normal pattern that we've seen elsewhere in the book, so God's people are breaking away from the normal pattern of following God's appointed judges. Instead, in treachery and ingratitude to what God has done through Gideon, they've sought a king for themselves. This narrative, both textually, that is like the, the, the very language, as well as quite literally in the actions of the people. It goes off the normal path. Israel has decided to do things its own way. And interestingly, in every judge's cycle up until this point in the book, when the judge died, the account ended by stating something like this, so the land had rest for a blank amount of years. And here, that does not happen. And in fact, it's never going to happen again for the rest of the book. It seems that here we reach something of a turning point in the book, that things have gone off the rails, and in some measure, at least irreparably, permanently so. Never again during the book of Judges will the land experience rest, which was the very reason God was giving it. That's huge. Throughout the book, the, the, the judges, as we were discussing even in our title, the judges are shown to be insufficient saviors. That is, even as God uses these judges to deliver his people from oppression, they're saviors and they, and they save, the people's pattern of idolatry nonetheless continues. It proves inefficient. The cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. And by the time we get to the end of the book, this is supposed to cause us to, to clearly sense then our, our need for something more a king who can lead the people. And the last verse of the book, if you go to verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, this repeated refrain throughout the book of people doing evil in the sight or the eyes of the Lord, the end of the book, at least in some ways, connects this to the lack of leadership, the lack of kingship within Israel. But in our passage today, the people had a king. The Abimelech account, account, in other words, shows us that it's not just any king that will do. If that's all that was needed was a king, any king, then why did things go so badly under Abimelech? Rather, what the story of Abimelech makes clear is that we need not just any king, but the right sort of king, a righteous king. And later on, Israel would have to learn this same lesson all over again. In, in 1 Samuel, remember 1 Samuel chapter 8? Israel wants a king like the nations around them. And so they get Saul. But the, here's the thing, they don't need any help being like the nations around them. We've seen already in the book of Judges that being like the nations isn't going to solve their problem. That is the problem. We don't need a Saul. We need a king in the pattern of one like David, a king after God's own heart who will lead the people in righteousness. And then not ultimately David, but Jesus. 
And so we come to verse 7 and following, we get Jotham's curse, the son that does survive. Jotham gives this fable of these different vegetations, these plants, these trees, and Abimelech is seen as the bramble bush who is called to rule over Shechem. And Jotham pronounces a curse at the end, this retribution that they will get repaid for what they have done in the form of self-destruction. And interestingly, Jotham announces his curse at Mount Gerizim, which if you remember in the book of Deuteronomy, Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. When, when God gave them the, the blessings and the curses of the covenant, Mount Gerizim was where the blessings were announced. And now it's flipped, where it becomes the mountain on which curses are stated. Verse 16, Jotham concludes, Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserve, no, of course they have not. Verse 19, if then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, which of course is the answer, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem. Let Abimelech destroy Shechem, and then let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Bethmil and devour Abimelech. Let them destroy themselves. And this, of course, is what we get in verse 22 to the end of the section, is that God sends this harmful spirit to bring treachery between Abimelech and Shechem so that they would experience retribution for their sin, just as Jotham had said. Verse 24, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands, who enabled him to kill his brothers. And so Shechem turns on Abimelech, and they set men in ambush against him, and then they appoint a new king for themselves, and Abimelech returns the favor, and he sets his own ambushes. We get this kind of exchange of ambushes going on, and then we get something of a Lord of the Rings two-tower situation, where the first tower, Abimelech and his men, they burn it to the ground, and they kill everyone inside. And so this fulfills Jotham's curse quite literally, right? That fire comes out and devours Shechem. And then the second tower, Abimelech thinks, well, that worked the first time, let's do that again. But this time, this unnamed woman drops a millstone on him and crushes his head. We think of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so we get our conclusion in chapter 9, verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he had committed against his father in killing his 70 sons, or his 70 brothers. Verse 57, And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. This is the retribution then. It, it, it takes the form of simply handing them over to their own devices. The two, Abimelech and Shechem, ruin each other. How many of you grew up, you know, Nintendo 64 or maybe onward playing Mario Kart? And you guys play Mario Kart? You guys know the game Mario Kart? You know, everyone knows Mario, right? There's a little game where everyone gets in a go-kart. You got to race each other. You can pick up little superpowers. And one of those little powers is the ability to drop a banana. Because, of course, we all know bananas exist so that people can slip and fall on them. And so when you, when you pick up the superpower in, in Mario Kart, you lay the banana behind you. Bloop. 
And then if anyone comes behind you and they hit it, they all they go spinning off, right? But one of the things that I always ended up doing is I would lay the banana peel, and then when I came around the track, I would end up hitting my own banana peel. <laughs> you lay in a trap for yourself, and that's how we are with our own sin oftentimes. We lay a trap for ourselves. Our own sin proves self-destructive. And you see, sometimes God judges us simply by giving us over to our own desires. Romans 1 famously, Paul talks about this, where he says that in our own sin, when the wrath of God is revealed, God simply gives us up to our sin. That's how he judges us. That's how his wrath is expressed, simply giving us over to our sin, giving us what we want. God's judgment takes the form of merely letting sin run its course and have its consequences. You see, the threat wasn't merely external. Like, like normally it's the Philistines. Normally we see the Midianites. They're the oppressors. But here, the threat is also internal. There's, there's actually no oppressive nations even mentioned in this passage. So what do, we, what do we learn? We learn that God's people are a threat to themselves. God lets us have what we want. We like to blame others for our problems, but we prove to be our worst enemy. We want to do things our own way. But what we don't realize is that the freedom we desire ends up being our very enslavement. Interestingly, Scripture describes sin as slavery, as a bondage. It's a really interesting imagery because, because unlike physical slavery, sin is not bondage from the outside, like someone forcing us to be slaves, forcing us to do things and subjecting us. Rather, the slavery of sin is self-imposed. It's being held captive to our own corrupt desires. It's, it's a slavery of our own making. It's a self-imposed prison sentence, and we hold, hold the key to our own prison cell. It's a slavery of freely pursuing our sin. And so we see in this passage, as we might summarize this, this entire story, is that God brings retribution. He brings judgment for their sin, and he does it in the form of this self-destruction. God brings retribution for those who showed treachery or disloyalty to him and his appointed deliverer, Gideon. Now, you may remember we argued that the book of Judges is likely written around the time of Saul and David, when the kingship emerges. And maybe if you think to the life of Saul, you'll notice that there are some really interesting parallels to Saul's kingship here. So as, with Saul, as, with, as in with Abimelech here, with Saul, the people of Israel also decide there to choose a king for themselves, right? For Samuel 8. Rather than choosing a king under God, they chose a king instead of God, we might say. And so they too go off the rails and they go their own way. You may remember that in our passage, God sends a harmful spirit to stir discord between Abimelech and Shechem in 9.23. The only other time that scripture uses this exact expression is for Samuel 16, where God likewise sends a harmful spirit to torment Saul, after he's been rejected by God as king. And then finally, their deaths are similar. Like Abimelech, Saul also dies in battle and in the company of his armor bearer. In other words, I think the Abimelech account parallels the failures of this first audience. The book is originally written to those 
in the time of Saul and David, likely. And the, the Abimelech account is, is meant to parallel their situation. They, in other words, have continued this sinful pattern in their own lifetime, and they continue to show disloyalty to God, and they still need to hear the same message themselves. And so a passage like this is designed to cause them to consider their own treachery to God, their own unfaithfulness to the deliverance that he has provided them. And it should prompt them to respond instead with loyalty to God for the rescuing that he has provided them. And so too for us who have also been rescued by God. And so I think we could summarize the message of this passage this way, quite simply, that the God who saves us deserves our loyalty. That the God who saves us is due our fidelity. And the people of Israel, as we've seen here and as they continue with Saul, they prove disloyal in response to God's deliverance. They suffer ingratitude in response to God's grace. But we also know that this occurrence is by no means an isolated incident. This theme is not unique to these events. But what? As we look across the entirety of Scripture, we see this pattern of disloyalty repeated throughout the Bible storyline. Think back even just to Exodus. Right after God delivers his people out of Egypt, what do they do in the wilderness? They complain. We would have rather had God just kill, up, kill us in Egypt rather than bring us out into the wilderness to die. At least there we had food and water. And as Israel's history continues, they continue to act disloyalty, disloyally to the God who saved them, re- refusing to obey his laws, even chasing after idols of the surrounding nations. And eventually their disloyalty to God proves so severe that God eventually judges them by sending them into exile. He effectively reverses the exodus by removing them from the land that he had gifted them and by sending them back into slavery under foreign power. And so as Abimelech and Shechem here, so to Israel, they face the retribution for the rebellion. Their sins come back to bite them like a fire that comes out to devour And so collectively, the story of the Old Testament is the story of a delivering God and a disloyal people, of a faithless people despite their faithful God. And this is the story of all humanity. The same sin is buried deep down into the hearts of every single one of us, that we want to go our own way, even in the face of a God who offers to save us so graciously. And so, too, we need to be delivered from our disloyalty. We need to be rescued from our rebellion against God. And we can't heal ourselves of the sickness. We need a physician. We need someone from the outside who can heal our waywardness. And this is, of course, exactly what God ends up doing at the very climax of the story. It's the very reason he sends his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ becomes the loyal partner that we always failed to be. He obeys the law perfectly. He lives the life that we should have lived. And not only so, but then he dies the death that we deserved for our disloyalty. Just as God judges Israel by exiling them for their disloyalty, so we all deserve God's judgment on account of our treachery against him. 
And Jesus then delivers us from that judgment by suffering its punishment in our place. He pays for our sins on the cross, paying the price for our disloyalty. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that we all like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. But not only does Jesus pay the punishment for our disloyalty, it gets even better than that. He also heals our disloyalty. Those of us who trust in Christ, we now live in the power of his resurrection, and he has poured out his spirit as the prophets foretold, empowering us to live lives now in obedience in response to the God who saves us. Ezekiel 36 verse 27 prophesied the day that we live in, believer, that that, that God will pour out his spirit. He will put his spirit within you and he will cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey all of God's rules. That God is now transforming us into the loyal people we were always meant to be. And so we respond to this message firstly by heeding the warning. There's There's a warning in this passage, right? That those who don't, respond to God's salvation, those who scorn God's grace. There's, there's self-destruction in the wake. There's, there's retribution, there's judgment for spurning God's salvation. It makes me think of some passages in the New Testament that pick up on this theme as well. 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, Paul talks about uh, some who reject the faith and thus have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, people he actually knew, not just theoretical, but Hymenaeus and Alexander make shipwreck of their faith by rejecting it. Or, or Peter speaks of false teachers who deny the master who bought them, and they bring upon themselves self-destruction. Hebrews 6 famously, an infamous passage, it says, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've they've gained a proximity to these things of salvation. They're, They're acquainted with salvation. And yet they then fall away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and they are holding him to contempt. And so the first thing we do in walking away from a passage like this is to heed its warning as believers. And for those here who are not even believers yet, it's, the, it's a call not to spurn his grace to begin with. That God has shown you so much grace that, 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 that he is even offering you salvation to be received by trusting in his son. And so your call then is to repent of, of trying to seek to live your life without reference to God, As Paul says in Romans 2, that, that you'd presume on the riches and the kindness of, of our God, his forbearance and his patience. Because don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And lastly and thirdly, we respond then instead with gratitude for salvation. Gratitude for our salvation that then it gets expressed in loyalty to God, in fidelity to God. You see, our, our disloyalty may not involve a conspiracy to kill 70 of our siblings, at least I sure hope not, but whenever we sin, we are acting treacherously towards God. 
we are being unfaithful to him. Sin is cosmic treason. It's the creaturely attempt to revolt against the rule of the sovereign of this universe. Whenever we sin, we are effectively saying, I reject God's claim on my life. I'm the master of my own choices. Whenever we sin, we are effectively saying, I don't believe that God is good. I don't trust him. I don't trust that his way is for my good. Whenever we sin, we are effectively saying that that I think I know better than the all-knowing God. But how much more treacherous is sin when we are not merely God's creatures, those that he owns by right of being our creator, but how much more for those, those of us whom he also owns on account of salvation, that he's redeemed us. That's purchase language. He's bought us, in other words, by the blood of his son. He doubly owns us. The New City Catechism, which our children use, it draws on the Heidelberg Catechism in its first question. It asks this. It says, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's salvation talk, right? That that we belong to God, both our bodies and our souls belong to God. And that is an incredibly assuring truth for us to cherish. That what's ultimately my hope in this life? That Jesus owns me. That he controls my destiny. That he and the Father hold me in their hand, as he says in John 10. And that nothing then can ever pry me out. What's my only hope in death? It's that I belong to Jesus, the one who defeated death. As Paul says in Colossians 3, that my life is hidden with Christ in God, and that one day when Christ comes again, he's going to raise me from death. Christ owns me, and that's the great blessing of salvation. But that ownership also extends not only to my salvation, but also to how I live my life now, that he owns me even now in this life and not merely the next. When God redeemed Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, He not only rescued them from the bondage of Egypt, but then what did he do? He brought them straight away to Mount Sinai where he made them his people and he gave them his law. You see, God had redeemed them. He had purchased them and therefore he owned them. In other words, they weren't merely rescued from their bondage, but they were were redeemed, they were purchased, they were bought into his people that they may live as his people. And so, too, our response to salvation should be to live as God's people and to be faithful to him. As, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, he says, You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, and so we ought to glorify God with our bodies. He owns us. When someone has uh, an illness... When someone has some sort of sickness like cancer and they start developing these symptoms, one of the things that we can do is we, as doctors, what they do is they look at those symptoms and they can say, okay, those are the symptoms. Now let's figure out what's causing those symptoms. They want to diagnose it. They want to figure out what's going on underneath the symptoms. And so likewise, when we look at sin, when we look at things like our disloyalty, we can also ask, what is the spiritual heart condition that's causing these symptoms. 
You can look at the sin of Shechem, for instance. They, they acted treacherously to Gideon's family, the one that God had used to save them. So in other words, I think what's going on here is that they didn't, show, they didn't have gratitude for the salvation that God had provided them. And it's easy for us, too, to grow accustomed to our salvation, to grow familiar with our salvation. And so as a result, we grow unappreciative. For most of us, I imagine that in most cases, most parts of our lives where we are acting disloyally to God, I doubt it's because we're showing outright contempt for God and his salvation. At least I hope not. Then we got bigger problems whether we've even experienced God's grace. But, but for most of us, I expect, our issue is that we are growing unappreciative for God's grace. And so it becomes, it becomes commonplace. In the Old Testament, you may remember that Israel, when God gave them the tabernacle and things like that, they were to have both things that were called holy and things that were called common. Common things were the things of everyday life. These were the items that you would find in your home or at the marketplace. But holy things, in contrast, these, these were things that were dedicated for use strictly within the tabernacle and the temple. These were not your ordinary utensils and instruments. They were the things of God, and you were not to treat them as common. And in a similar way, I think it can become easy for us, as we grow accustomed to our salvation, to start treating it as something common instead of what it truly is, something remarkable. We treat our salvation as, as ordinary. We kind of just treat it as a given, rather than the amazing grace that it truly is. And a lack of appreciation, then, can easily become the soil in which disloyalty grows. It starts small. We, we, we treat our salvation as commonplace, but it becomes the soil for the growth of something more heinous. And so like Abimelech and Shechem, we find ourselves repaying God's deliverance with disloyalty. And so if a lack of gratitude is a soil for our disloyalty, gratitude for our salvation, then, then in contrast, the, for, the, the fertile soil for fidelity is gratitude for salvation. Our cry needs to be that like the psalmists in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And our God is good. This is the God who saved us, after all. This is the God who gave us nothing short than his very son to save us. We ought to rejoice in the salvation. We ought to delight and we ought to live for him because it's our privilege to do so. That whenever we get to live for this God, we are the benefactors of his grace. And in the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus tells us, when he was instituting it, he said that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what does that mean when Jesus talks about a new covenant? What's he referring to? Well, this language of a new covenant comes from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. Jeremiah prophesied of a day in which God would make a new covenant with his people different than that one at Sinai, that old covenant that ended so poorly. So Jeremiah prophesies this about the new covenant. He said in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not that covenant, 
My covenant that they broke, they were unfaithful to that one, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That covenant told them what to do, what they ought to do to be faithful, but it didn't actually address the unfaithful hearts within them. But now this new covenant in verse 33, this is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Verse 34, no longer will each one of them have to teach his neighbor and, and to each his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I, I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. I'll deal with their transgressions under the first covenant. I'll deal with their unfaithfulness. In this new covenant, God is going to forgive his people. But then he continues. And I will put my law within them. And I'm going to write my law, not just on tablets of stone, but I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering Christ's death as that which saves us from the punishment of our disloyalty. We're also cherishing his death as that which won us the new covenant by which he empowers us to live differently, to be transformed into the loyal people that we were always meant to be. And so the Lord's Supper is a regular encouragement that God intends for us to live differently. But not only does it say that we're intended to live differently, like some command that we still can't fulfill, but it's, it's an encouragement that now God is empowering us to do so. Christ has not only bought our forgiveness, but he has also bought our ability to live loyal lives, lives that are loyal to the God who saved us. And the Lord's Supper is God's way of encouraging us. There's this picture representing that very promise that he is with us to transform us and empower us to live differently.